You're listening to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. This is episode 11. This episode is brought to you by the Loveland Living Planet Aquarium in Draper, Utah. This is a great place to go and celebrate World Oceans Day, which is June 8th. They have some great exhibits and really fun scavenger hunts and a really fun summer travel program that's going on that you'll want to check out. And they also have a family pass available if you want to go and explore on a regular basis and take field trips with your kids or meet up with friends for a play date. It's a great place to go explore, discover, and learn. The Loveland Living Planet Aquarium. Welcome to the Go Adventure Mom podcast, where having kids only adds to the adventure. Get outdoors, see the world, live a full life. Go Adventure Mom, for families who refuse to be indoorsy people. Now, let's go adventure with Kathy Dalton. Hello, this is Kathy Dalton. I am so thrilled about today's guest. His name is Joel Sartori, and he is a National Geographic photographer. He has created this ARC, which is basically an archive of over 6,500 different species that are just visually beautiful. I think he's worked on over 30 National Geographic covers. He is talented and is sharing his his experience with the oil spill in the Gulf about seven years ago and how he was able to see firsthand and to experience that. And hope you will stay tuned to the end because he's going to share some great tips for things that you can do in your own backyard and hope that you'll enjoy today's show. Hello, Joel. Welcome to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. We are so happy to have you today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, absolutely. I um, I grew up in Nebraska on purpose, believe it or not. All my family's out here. And uh, I live in Lincoln and uh, went to university here and then um, got a job with a newspaper in Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, for about six years, and then started in with National Geographic in 1990. So that's been 27 years ago. I'm a contract photographer for them, but I have worked on every continent and every state, and have tried to concentrate on conservation. Really, trying to trying to do pictures that that actually go to work and do some good and make the world a little bit better place. I love that. So before we dive into photography, and I've got some questions that I'm really excited to learn from you about. Where is your favorite place to go and adventure? You know, believe it or not, it's actually here in my home state of Nebraska and close by, say down into Kansas. I think these are little understood and little known gems in terms of the countryside and some of the prairies we have left that are really significant ecologically. And um, the small towns are kind of frozen in time in many ways. And I really like to hang out here. And part of that probably is because I'm gone so much. I mean, I think I was gone all but three days in February and all but two days in March. So I'm always really excited to get back home here to the Great Plains. But I think it's a wonderful place. Can't get enough of it. Helps that my wife and kids are here too, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and how many kids do you have? I have three kids, a boy that's 23, a girl 20, and our youngest is a boy who's still at home, and he's 13. So I have three kids as well. I also have a boy that's nine and a girl that's six and a boy that's three. So we have similar spacing, but you're a little bit further in that journey. Well, I can tell you that you're in for it. That's all I can say. 
<laughs> they out, thanks for the support. They out, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they out they outnumber you, and you and you're just going to be surrounded at times by a lot of ingratitude. That's what I found. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. Good advice. So growing up, my I was given a camera. I think when I was like 12 years old, you know, an old just kind of cheap little film camera. And then when I was in high school, my father gifted me a nicer, a D, what would it be? An SLR camera, not DSLR. We didn't have those back then. And just have always been fascinated with photography and have loved capturing pictures and, and the stories that they tell. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you became a National Geographic photographer. Sure. I just like taking pictures of things that were weird or different, interesting, funny. I just mainly wanted to entertain my friends and my girlfriend back then, who was my wife, and found that once I took a photojournalism class at the university, it came very easily to me. It's the only thing I got A's in. I probably would have been a biologist, but it required math and chemistry in college, which I couldn't do. So journalism was it. And I got a bachelor's degree in that and then had a really good boss at the, at the first newspaper I worked at, uh, the Wichita Eagle, who trusted me to go out and just kind of do my own thing. And it developed the ability to, to think on my feet. And as long as I came up with something interesting they could publish in the paper, they let me, they let me do that. And that was a very good training ground for working with National Geographic because there's no boss that goes with you into the field. You're often in the field for weeks at a time on your own. And back in the film days, when I started, there was nobody able to check your work or see how you were doing. You were just literally on your own and had to be able to think through different situations. Is this working visually? Does this tell a good story? Is it interesting? Is it relevant to the messages we wanted to get across? If you're doing a story on, let's say, grizzly bears, you can't just show trained bears at a circus or maybe out in L.A., uh, where they train bears for the movies and for advertisements, you have to be able to think through, okay, what, what are the real issues facing bears? It's humanity, and all of us are spreading out into bear country. That's one of the big issues. And so it's, it was imperative that I learn early on how to be a good journalist, a good visual journalist. And the newspaper I work for trained me for that. And then I've had a lot of in-the-field training with National Geographic as well. They expect you to work right out of the box. When you go there, you're expected to do a, a really great job and create kind of a gold standard for the coverage of whatever subject you're working on. They expect that coverage to be, to be the only coverage that they do for about 20 years at a time. So it's a heavy responsibility, and it, it's a lot of work. It's not fun. What's fun is talking about it with you today. It's, it's work. Most, <laughs> most people would be surprised. And I always say, yeah, it'd be the best job in the world if you didn't have to work once you got there, you know. You have to, it's not, a, it's not vacation. It's never a vacation. And that was one of my questions. What are some of the not so glamorous aspects of, of being a professional photographer? And I mean, your travel schedule in February kind of speaks to that as one of the things. Talk to us a little bit more about being in the field and what's not so glamorous. Sure. I think something people wouldn't expect is it's a very lonely life. You're by yourself. You're dependent on the kindness of strangers. By the time you get to a situation and you understand really what's going on and you've got your pictures, it's time to go. Right when you meet people, it's time to go. And that's surprising for most people. The hours are another thing, the hours. We are we are getting up in, in the dark and we're going to bed in the dark. In, in the summertime, that's a very, very long day. So we are, we're up and in position to shoot the first pictures at sunrise, wherever that is. 
and we are working off and on captioning and expenses and, and lining up the next day's shoot well into the night. So very, very long days. And you have to be kind of type A. You have to be very driven. The way that I got on with Geographic was just showing them my portfolio. And then initially I got a recommendation from a photographer that worked for them already. And then showing them my work every three or four months for almost two years. So I got a, a little one day assignment. So you have to be very persistent and very driven. We can, all geographic photographers come from all walks of life from around the world and different, different college degrees and that kind of thing. But the one thing we all have in common is we're very persistent and we're very type A. We don't put anything off that we could get done today. And uh, we, we get the job done. No matter where you send us, we'll get the job done. That's a pretty important thing to remember. And most people, fortunately, are not built like that. I mean, I don't think the world would be that fun a place if everybody was extremely type A. There probably wouldn't be a tree left standing, you know, if people were that <laughs> industrious. <laughs> so it's all right. It's all right. But, but the things you're saying, you know, it's, it's a lonely life. It's, it's, I mean, hard, long hours. I, I think a lot of the times we see the images and we picture, oh, you know, these, these beautiful settings. But in order to just set up one shot, I mean, this is, you know, days in the making and researching and, you know, talking to the locals, if, if that's a resource. And, you know, yeah, getting that one shot, it's, it's not lucky. There's a lot that goes into that. That's right. It's like when you go and hear a really good musician. They make it look so easy, like it just like they were just naturally talented. Well, sure, a lot of that's natural talent, but the other part of it is practicing four or five hours a day for thirty years. That's why they make it sound good. So it's it's a constant push to do a really good job to get into the places we need to get it into, to get out alive, not without getting killed, to be a a responsible journalist who tells the truth, and and a. Um, and a compassionate one who leaves the scene better than he or she found it. It's important for people to know that their lives will be better for having allowed you in it. And so that applied when I was a, out in the field for all these different stories for National Geographic. I think I've done 36 stories for them now. But it's also equally important when I'm working in places where, that have animals in human care, like zoos, aquariums, private breeders, wildlife rehabbers. It's important for them to know that we are going to tell their stories well and accurately and faithfully. And so that's, that's really my number one thing is for people to trust me and know that I'm going to represent them well and the work that they do very well and try to educate readers in terms of what's going on in the natural world and these conservationists that are really trying to do great work and save species now while there's still time. Tell us a little bit about the Gulf oil spill and your involvement with that. And, and I mean, that kind of ties into what you were just saying about telling the story, but also, I mean, that was such a tragedy, but you were able to be there, you know, firsthand. Share your experience about that. Well, that was in April of 2010, I think. And I remember when that happened and it was going on and on and on, I remember saying to my wife, they're going to call me. They're going to call me, meaning geographic's going to call me and drag me into it. So I have to cover it. And sure enough, the phone rang a couple of weeks later because that, that still went on for a long time. And they said, hey, we need you to go down there and start in. So I did. Very tragic thing to see an oil spill and to see the coastline for miles and miles mired in that and in muck and oil and grease and to see wildlife trapped in it, dead and dying. And, you know, I got to say, I don't believe that BP or anybody involved in it ever wanted that to happen. Of course not. 
it's something that, that everybody tries to avoid. And all of us consume fossil fuel. All of us do. But we do have to be more responsible in how we do things and not cut corners and, and really try to do things the right way. I'm very afraid if we start drilling in, in the Arctic where it's very cold, you're gonna ha- you could have a spill up there that decimates wildlife for more than 100 years. It will not go away in our lifetime. With the Gulf, it's fairly resilient there. They are seeing long-term health effects in, in wildlife, and I'm certain that probably show up in people eventually, but, but the Gulf is a hot place year-round, and there's more bacterial action to help work on the oil that's spilled and, and still a mess, but it was a very sad thing. I remember uh, flying out over the spill site a time or two. I got a cough. I had a cough for about a year after that, and I thought, wow, those people that are down in that breathing all that stuff, uh, I can't imagine how their health was, but it was an eye-opener. It was not fun. It was hot, and got the, literally the only bright spot out of that entire coverage was going to the going to the rescue center to see the animals cleaned up. That was amazing, and I looked forward to it. They opened it up to journalists one day a week. It's at Fort Jackson, Louisiana, kind of down on the on the Mississippi River Delta. It's called the Fort Jackson Bird Rehabilitation Center. It was in Beerus, I think. And they were de-oiling birds with uh, Dawn dishwashing liquid, believe it or not. And for many of those birds, they had a very happy ending. They were, they were degreased, de-oiled, fluffed up again, washed, fluffed up again, kept warm, fed, and then eventually put outside into flight pens. And then once they were, you know, all better, they were released. So that was really the only happy thing about that coverage was to see these people working and saving wildlife. About a year and a half ago, I was able to go with Dawn as part of their Dawn Saves Wildlife campaign to the Sausalito Marine Mammal Center. Yes, yes. And got to learn about that whole process. And while we were there, they were sharing about that Gulf experience and how, you know, everybody asked, well, why Dawn? But they had, I mean, literally tried everything. They they tried, like, from nail polish remover to paint thinner to all these things. Yeah. And it was kind of like this, I don't know, fluky thing that happened where they were able to use the Dawn dish soap and it was able to, I mean, really degrease and get all that oil off, but still right. gentle yeah. and would, would help to save the lives. And and I know at the Marine Mammal Center, that's all they use to clean, you know, from the, the, the dishes to the to the pens to, to everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was out there at that very center in Sausalito working on the an elephant seal pup that had been brought in. And then nearby is the International Bird Rescue Center. And the same way, I mean, they use Dawn because it works. And Dawn's been helping them for 40 years. So so that's a really good thing. And it's amazing, you know, these animals, when they get oiled like that, whether it's a marine mammal like an otter or a sea lion or an elephant seal or a bird, that oiling prevents the animal from staying warm. If they can't get that oil out and get their fur or feathers fluffed by that back out and get their natural skin oils back on their their feathers or their or their fur, they lose their ability to inflate against the cold of the ocean and they die. And so it's really critical to get them clean again and, and fast. So I've been out there to to uh, the International Bird Rescue Center twice or three times now to get the various birds they've got that come in for care and. Uh, it's very heartening. You know, I love going to wildlife rehab centers because 
they're literally taking animals that are on the brink of death and, and saving them, bringing them back. It's one of my favorite things to do. It really is. It's such a happy ending, you know. Well, and I, I, and I love that you're able to go and photograph these experiences, like you said, to, you know, sh- share to the public and, and create that awareness and education through your visual storytelling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an honor and kind of a responsibility to do it, you know. So there at that, at the Bird Rehab Center there at Fort Jackson um, in Louisiana during the Rostow, I mean, they had thousands of birds come through there. And some of them didn't make it. You know, they were already too far gone or they didn't chest it oil. They, they were trying to preen their feathers and they would swallow oil as they preened. But a lot of them did. And, I mean, it was an army of people and they were working around the clock for months. It was... <laughs> It was really impressive. But again, it was the big bright spot in the coverage because everything else was just kind of sad. It was a long time before they could get that, the oil shut off that was spilling into the Gulf. And that was something people could actually, actually do about it. So I look forward to going every once a week. They'd open it up for a few hours once a week so journalists like me could go in and, and photograph. I'll never forget it, actually. Joel shares what you can do to help save wildlife when we return. This past week, we did some shopping and wanted to share how we are able to outfit all three of our kids in outdoor gear because that's a question we get a lot. And we know for families, it can get really expensive. Two things that we have found to be really helpful. Number one is savers. There is a savers by our house that we absolutely love. We find tons of great deals, especially at like on athletic clothing. We found like Nike and Adidas and Under Armour. It's all really nice, gently used. I think some of the stuff hasn't even been worn before. We found Cannondale kids biking shirts there. And this last trip that we went, we even found a pair of soccer cleats. So for under what you would pay for a t-shirt regularly, you can get a couple of outfits. And that's a really great thing. And then a place that we love to go is Second Track Sports. It's located on 33rd South in Salt Lake City. And they sell gently used and some new clothes too at a good price. And they've got gear, they've got backpacks for backpacking, they've got tents, they've got bikes, skis. And what I love about Second Track Sports is they're a consignment shop. So you can take your old ski boots that maybe your kids grow out of, or I had some ski boots that were just always too tight and they would cut the circulation off of my feet. But it was something that, you know, we didn't want to just give to the goodwill and we were able to consign it and get some money. So I had about $100 worth of credit for selling some ski boots and another pair of boots and was able to outfit my kids and found some great Patagonia Nano Puff jackets and some other really great shirts. We're back on the Go Adventure Mom podcast. Our guest today is Joel Sartori, a National Geographic photographer. Talk to us a little bit about um, this ARC project that you're working on with National Geographic. That's just amazing. Sure. Well, actually, you know, from that coverage, we did a photo arc portrait for the, from the, the, um, the oil spill. We did a, I did a cover story, and one of the birds from from Fort Jackson and an oiled an oiled pelican. He ended up on the cover of National Geographic and I'm happy to say he was cleaned off and released and uh, is driving in the wild again. But that was part that portrait was part of this thing I'm calling the photo arc, which is a 25 year effort to document every species in human care around the world, whether it's rare now or common now to give us a, a big archive 
of what the world's biodiversity looked like from the smallest marine invertebrates all the way to elephants and rhinos. And uh, I've been doing this 11 years now. We have about 6,500 portraits so far. These are, these are portraits of animals on black and white backgrounds using studio lighting, by the way. It's kind of like your senior prom pictures. But they're beautifully done. They're, they're very beautiful. Like, I don't know, I kind of picture like a document archive as just kind of like these mugshots of animals, but these are like beautifully backlit, like hippos and rhinoceroses. And I mean, all of these animals. Oh, it's just stunning. Yes, yeah, so we work. We, we use black and white backgrounds because it makes all animals equal in terms of size. Because there's no size comparison. You know, a mouse is every bit as an, as big and important as an elephant or a polar bear. And uh, same with insects. We do a lot of invertebrates to try to show the world what there is, and and to really to get the public to care about other species other than ourselves. Most people, you know, they naturally care about how they're doing at work, the kind of car they drive, who's playing the ball game this weekend. But really, the future of life on Earth depends on us paying attention finally. We're not doing a very good job of it now. I mean, if we keep going the way we're going with human overpopulation, consumption, uh, tearing down rainforests, overfishing, we stand to lose half of all species by 2100. That's huge, and it's going to affect humanity in a major way. So the goal of PhotoArc is, is to get people acquainted with all the other animals we share the planet with, at least the charismatic ones that we can find to get human care and get them moved to take action while there's still time to save species. One of the things that we're trying to push here through National Geographic's photo arc site and through my site, which is joelsartori.com, is to get people aware that pollinators are really vital to the fruits and vegetables we eat. We need pollinating insects like bees and butterflies and even flies. So, we're trying to encourage people to plant pollinator gardens in their own backyard, get school teachers to get their schools to allow pollinator gardens to get going. This means nectar-bearing plants for bees. This means milkweed for monarch butterflies. They, these are all things that we try to push and get people to be aware that, that saving the earth starts in your own backyard. You will go crazy thinking about trying to save the entire planet, but there are lots of things you can do at home from your consumer choices, what, what kind of products do you buy, to the car you drive, to how well your home is insulated, to not putting chemicals on your lawn of any kind, no fertilizers, no herbicide, no insecticide, and planting a pollinator garden. That is a very foreign concept to people, to actually not put anything on their lawn, not even water their lawn. It's grass. It will grow back when the rains come. It won't die. But it's a very, common, uh, it's a very foreign concept to people that have maybe grown up with what we'd call a perfect-looking lawn, which is actually a very sterile and toxic place. Um, the, those chemicals you put on, their lawn, on your lawn end up in the watershed, and other people end up drinking that water downstream. So we want people to know that there are, many, there are great ways of doing things right at home that will save you money, which means it makes you money, and all of us can do a lot. So that, these are the things that we get really excited here, about here at the PhotoArc. Really excited about it. And it's, it's also available as a book. There's the website that has uh, the different species that you can see, and we'll include the link to those in our show notes. Yeah, and we also have a, a PBS show coming out this summer called Rare Creatures of the Photo Arc. It'll be on PBS around the country and uh, internationally on the National Geographic Channel starting in late July. Three one-hour shows where this crew from WGBH out of Boston went around the world with me for about 18 months and we photographed the rarest animals on the planet. 
some of which can be saved, some of which can't, but um, it was really an interesting experience. I think people enjoy it. I, I love profiling not only the species, but the people that work very hard to save these species. Oh, yes. We'll definitely watch that as a family. I, I think the more that we can you know, teach that next generation what, what is going on and, and what they can do to take action, I think is really powerful. You bet. You bet. Well, thank you, Joel, for being on the show and for sharing your expertise and loved hearing about your hands-on experience with the Gulf oil spill, but also love what you're sharing about how we can save, help to save wildlife in our own backyards. My pleasure, Kathy. I sure appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. For more family adventure, visit GoAdventureMom.com. Plus, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends.